Take your copy of the Scriptures, open with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is a transition, as you may remember, the first 11 chapters of the book are Paul's theological discourse. It's the foundation on uh, which he expounds his understanding, particularly of the gospel, man's sin, the process of God's salvation, and uh, the process of sanctification and God's sovereignty over salvation, both for Jew and Gentile. And having laid this robust theology Uh, Paul then transitions in chapter 12 to begin to apply that. So chapters 12 to 15 are Paul's application of the theology of chapters 1 to 11. Romans 12, listen as I read the chapter in its entirety. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of the faith, if service in His serving... Or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you bow with me? Father, what a magnificent book, what a magnificent letter, what a powerful gospel that is revealed in this book. We have been reminded of it again this morning as we have read from it. Our hearts are full of gratitude. We have been a long time in this letter, meditating, considering, praying over, delighting in, being transformed by this powerful, omnipotent, Word of grace that has come from you. It is powerful, it is authoritative, it is inerrant, it is unchanging, it is magnificently beautiful, and it is all that we need. And as we take 
one more quick look at this book. Might our hearts be driven to Christ in satisfaction with Him and you who sent Him to be our Savior. Might our lives be transformed by the Spirit that He sent to be with us so that we might look with look like Him and be worthy sons of You. Would You guide us as we look at this letter one last time? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I preached the first sermon on the book of Romans in this series on May 10th, 2015. That was six and a half years ago. Now, in fairness to me and the slowness of the time that we have been in there, um, not every sermon every week in those six and a half years was in the book of Romans. I counted this week. This is sermon 161. So, really, we've got a little over three years worth of sermons that I crammed into six and a half. In case you're wondering, uh, chapter 8 had the most sermons, 21. Chapter 16 had the least, 4. I figured that I have written, I didn't count all the words, I think it was a task too daunting, but I figure I wrote in just my sermon preparation notes, the things that never made it to the pulpit, somewhere around a million words. I wrote about a half million words, actually a little over a half million words of sermon manuscripts in this series. We've been here for a while. As we come to the end of this great letter, what will we say about it? On a personal level, it has been a most remarkable journey for me. I love preaching everything I get to preach. I think I love preaching more now than I ever have in my life. Something about this book that has been particularly special. While everything in the Scriptures is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness, something about Romans, for me personally, has stood a cut above. We love everything in the book. We embrace everything in the book. Just like Jesus embraced all twelve of His disciples. They were all a delight to Him. But of His twelve Three stood apart, Peter, James, and John. And as I consider the years of preaching that I've done, three, have, three books have stood apart. Ephesians, 1 John, and Romans. And of the three disciples of Jesus, one only was His beloved, John. And of the three, one is particularly beloved by me, and it is this book. Part of the wonder of Romans for me is the season in which I preached it. I remember when I began this series, a pastor friend of mine, we were comparing things that we were preaching, and I said, I'm, I'm starting the book of Romans. And he looked at me and he said, how long have you been at Grace? I said, 25 years. Have you never preached Romans before this? I said, no. <laughs> Why, man, haven't you preached it yet? I, I don't know. Always something else just seemed to be more appropriate. I'm really glad I waited because my theology is settled and sure and firm and the truths in these pages leapt off the pages to my heart. And I repeatedly had it minister to my own soul week by week. I can't tell you how many times in my study as I read this text and read the commentaries that I had to stop and bow my head in prayer with tears streaming from my eyes. This captured my soul. This letter has been a balm of comfort and it's been a source of wisdom for me personally. So we got to the end of the exposition three weeks ago on October 3rd and I just couldn't leave it behind. I had to write what is called in literature an afterword or an epilogue in music, a coda, to finish this letter out. When we introduced the book, we gave an overview of it with the first sermon, and 
I've done many summary sermons of the book along the way, condensing Paul's thoughts. So if you want a full summary, you can go back to some of those sermons. That's not the objective today. Today I want to conclude with my gratitude for this book. And why I love it so. And I'll summarize this message similarly to how I did it the first Sunday, May 10th. Romans is God's gospel. God's power for salvation to all who believe. Romans is all about the gospel of God and how he saves sinners of whom we all are and how he is powerful to redeem us from sin and sanctify us by the Spirit and take us home to glory. As we come through this book, Let me point your attention to five reasons to be grateful for the book of Romans. This is not an extensive list. This is the tip of the iceberg. But these are five meditations that I had this week in considering this book. First, be thankful for Romans because Romans is gospel-centered. We saw this a few weeks ago. Paul wrote this book because he was headed to Spain and he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. He'd been to numerous other regions in Asia Minor with the gospel and churches had been planted throughout those regions and he wanted to go somewhere where the gospel had not yet been preached. And so he set his sights on Spain and he wanted Rome to serve as his ground and base for taking the gospel to Spain. But he'd never been to the Roman church before. And while he had numerous friends that were in Rome and in the church that was there, he'd never actually been to that church. So he writes this letter in large part to say, I need your help in going to Spain. Will you support me? And you can support me because I believe the gospel that you believe. I believe the gospel that is inherent in the Old Testament and has been preached by Christ. I believe the orthodoxy of the gospel. And the book of Romans, we typically say, is divided up into five sections. It is divided into um, sections that all relate in some way to the gospel. So the first main section starts in 118 and goes through 320, and that section is all about sin. It is about man's inability to save himself. Before anyone is saved, he must understand that he is lost. So Paul's gospel begins with an understanding of man's lostness. So in chapter 1, the ungodly are lost. 118, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those, verse 32, who know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Ungodly people, unregenerate people, are ensnared in sin, trapped in sin, and worthy of God's wrath. The ungodly are lost. But it's not just the ungodly Gentiles that are lost. Jews also are lost. That's his transition in chapter 2, where the Jew might be saying, that's right, Paul, the ungodly, the Gentiles are lost. Let them have it. And he turns his sights on them in chapter 2 and says, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse... Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that in which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who practice the same things. You, you're doing the same thing that ungodly Gentiles would do, and you are facing the same wrath of Christ. The ungodly are lost. The Jews who are leaning on their own righteousness and not the righteousness of Christ, they also are lost. In fact, chapter 3, all men everywhere without Christ are lost and under God's wrath. As it is written, verse 10, chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. The gospel is given in this letter of necessity because of sin. Sin separates us from God, invites God's wrath on us, and we are incapable of escaping sin on our own. That's the first section. The second section of the book is about salvation. That's 321 to 521. If... If all men are lost, chapters 1 to 3, then where is our hope? Our hope is in the gospel that comes through the justifying work of Christ. Man who is unrighteous is declared to be righteous because of Christ's death. 324, being justified, declared righteous 
as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the redeeming, buying power which is in Christ Jesus. Who is this Christ? He is the one, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, brothers, if your hearts don't sing at that, you have every reason to question your salvation. That that is our salvation. It's Christ only. We get salvation not by working, but by believing. Paul's gospel is articulated in his understanding of sin, his understanding of salvation, and his understanding of sanctification. That's chapters 6 through 8. That's... That's the heart of the book. And the heart of the message is not only does God save sinners, but God changes sinners. So that we're no longer ensnared by sin, trapped by sin, in bondage to sin, chained by sin, but we're set free from sin. There's liberty. There's freedom. Oh, brothers, there's hope. 6.10 The life that He died, He died, Christ did to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, because of that, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All those patterns of sin, all the things that have trapped you, when you're in Christ, he says you're set free. They no longer command you. They no longer direct you. And this is the heart of the book. God's plan and Christ's death were the purpose for, for the purpose of changing us to look like Jesus Christ. Remember 8.28, 8.29. He died and then chose us, brought us into fellowship with Christ End of verse 29, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants us to want Christ and to look like him and to live for him. So our salvation means, chapters 3, 4, and 5, that we are not saved by working. We are saved by believing. And sanctification means that because we believe in Christ, we work for Christ. We're not saved by our works, but because we're saved, we work. We labor. And brother and sister, if you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you must believe in Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are ensnared by sin, trapped by sin. Everything you do is sin. That's the message of the first three chapters. No matter how much you try... You cannot change yourself. The leopard, Jeremiah would say, cannot change his spots, nor can the sinner change himself. That is dependent only on Christ. And Christ can change you. 6.22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. This is what he does. He changes us and transforms us. So friend, if you're not a Christian and you're battling the sin and you're sick of your sin and you want out of your sin, then turn to Christ. Only He can save you. So repent. Turn away from the sin and turn towards Christ. Embrace Him. Follow Him. Live for Him. That's your only satisfaction That's your only hope. So the gospel is in the first first eight chapters. As Paul unpacks sin, salvation, sanctification. Then chapters 9 to 11, he unpacks sovereignty. No man is adequate to save himself. Chapters 9 to 11 demonstrate that God is able to save anyone. He is sovereign to save all. His, 
His ability is not shortened by man's sin. The blood of Christ has no limit. It is extensive enough to atone for anyone's sin. He is sovereign to save all, and He will save all whom He has chosen. That's the message of 9 to 11. Consider, for instance, 9.15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will have mercy, and they will be saved. That's true of the nation of Israel, and it's true of the Gentiles. So 11.25, I do not want you to be... I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, some of Israel has not believed the nation as a nation has not yet been saved so that while we're waiting for Israel's complete salvation to come, the Gentiles have been grafted into the promise. Verse 26, And yet, All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is, from Israel. This is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Christ is able to save Gentiles, though they were not originally chosen as His chosen people, as God's chosen people, and He also will fulfill His promises to Israel. He is sovereign over salvation for all. And because of this great salvation, when we get to chapter 12, He says, let us serve Him. So chapters 12 to 16 are about service. We've been saved by the gospel. We're liberated to serve Christ in His church. Our salvation is given to us so that we humbly serve the Lord and humbly serve His people. That's why he begins in 12.3 with an explanation of the spiritual gifts and then talks about the preservation of relationships later in that chapter. So we summarize Romans with one brief sentence. Romans is about God's gospel, the power of God for salvation, both for Jews and Gentiles, for all who believe. I love this book and we give thanks for this book because every page of this great letter is soaked in gospel blood. And that is why this letter is so precious to us. It reminds us of our utter utter inability to save ourselves and then it showers us with the truth of God's lavish, extravagant, abundant, absurd grace to save us and to make us His friends and His sons. Romans, His gospel-centered, give thanks. Romans also, we give thanks because it is biblically based. Now that sounds silly, doesn't it? I mean, Terry, it's in the Bible. So why would you say it's biblically based? Because Romans is unique in the way it is written. Romans has 63 direct quotations from the Old Testament. 20% of all of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are in this letter. It is, it, it has more Old Testament quotations than any other book in the New Testament. It has more than the book of Hebrews, which is written to Israel. And it is more than Matthew, which is the gospel to the Jews. It is the most Old Testament-centric book. There are more Old Testament quotations in this one letter than all 12 of Paul's other letters combined. There are more Old Testament quotations in this letter than all of the general epistles. All of the epistles written by other Bible writers, so Peter, James, and John, all their letters. So why does Paul use so many Old Testament quotations? More than half the quotations, 33 of the quotations, are in chapters 9 to 11, where he explains God's sovereignty and salvation and explains the relationship of the Jews and Gentiles in the eternal plan of God. So it is natural that he would there quote from the Old Testament to help them both understand, both Jew and Gentile, 
that what he is explaining about the gospel is not something new, it is not something aberrant, but it is something that always has been part of God's eternal purpose and plan for salvation. He leans heavily on the Old Testament to emphasize that his teaching is not new, it's not novel. It's rooted in the scriptures, it's rooted in what God has previously revealed. Let me just give you one example. 117. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, and this is the key verse to the book, because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And how will he support that? He supports it by quoting from the Old Testament, verse 17, because, for, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, it's always about faith. As it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. How is it that the gospel is the power for salvation both for Jew and Gentile? Because he says that's an Old Testament truth all the way back in Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, I'm not introducing a new idea. This is a bedrock truth that goes way back to the prophets. It's always been God's salvation plan to save Jew and Gentile both. Brothers and sisters, the Bible-centeredness of Romans is helpful because it reminds us that what we need for our joys and what we need for our sorrows is this book. Nothing else will do. In this sword, we have everything we need to provide for us. We have everything we need to protect us. We don't need over self-help theology. We don't need psychology. We don't need pet therapy. We don't need self-medicating practices. We need this book. And by reminding us that he himself is not speaking of his own authority, but he is simply reaffirming what God has revealed, Paul reminds us that we can be confident in this book. Whatever your sorrow is today, what grief do you carry? What physical pain do you endure? What joy are you tempted to find a satisfaction in that excludes Christ? Paul reminds us that what we need is this book. This is where we find hope. This is our life. This is our joy. It's where Paul went for his hope. And it is hope for us as well. Give thanks because Romans is gospel-centered, because Romans is biblically based, because Romans is missions-driven. We considered... The passages in Romans 15 just a few weeks ago. But it is good to remember that Paul is not just a theologian, and he is a preeminent theologian, but he is a theologian with the heart of an evangelist and a missionary. He yearns to take the gospel to places that haven't heard the gospel. He loves to go to the nations, to all the nations. As a Jew, he yearns for the salvation of the Jews. Chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If, if only... If only my beloved in, in Israel, if only my fellow kinsmen, my fellow Israelites would believe, I would be willing to be damned to hell for them if they would believe. Oh, he yearns, longs for them to know Christ. Chapter 10, verse 1, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. But... 
As a Jew, he is not only committed just to the Jews, but he is also committed to the great covenant of the Jews, the Abrahamic covenant that was given to the father of Israel, Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All all the earth has access to the gospel through Israel and And Paul yearns, loves, embraces, delights in the desire to take the gospel to the nations so that he can be part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant whereby the nations get the gospel. He loves, as a Jew, he loves Gentiles who are almost always hated by the Jews. So he says, 15.10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Verse 12, again Isaiah says, There shall come from the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you Gentiles in Rome with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a Jew, but he's not just thinking about the Jews, though he thought a lot about them. He's also thinking of the Gentiles. And Paul doesn't just think of missions as something that would be nice to do. He understands it is his duty. One fourteen. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Taking this gospel is not just a privilege. It's our duty. It's our mandate. It's our calling. That was true of Paul. It's true of us. Because missions is his only option, Paul's goal with his theology is to see the church planted and then expanded in the nations. And he grieves when people die without the gospel. He is relentless in his desire to expand the gospel through international influence in the church and of the church. It's this kind of passion that has driven our own mission policy The goal for the missions at Grace Bible Church is to cultivate a network of missionaries that will expand our global involvement and see people from all the nations trust in Christ, love Christ, and live for Christ's glory. Oh, we dare not hold it for ourselves. It's it's good, good to keep it. It's good to preserve it. It's good to defend it. And it's good to shout it from the mountains. It's our calling. It's our duty. Because we have received God's overflowing grace to save us, we long for others to also know Christ and that same grace. Because there's only one gospel and there's only one means of salvation, that is believing in Jesus Christ, how will the unregenerate of the nations hear Unless we go and tell them. That's chapter 10, isn't it? This evangelistic and missionary endeavor is not only a command and duty, but brothers and sisters, this is our delight. It's our joy. 10.15 How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. I got to tell you, if I were to take off my socks and shoes this morning, none of you would say, hey, beautiful feet, preacher. I I know they're not beautiful. But when they take the gospel, they're beautiful. And it's our joy. And it's our satisfaction. I want you to imagine a scene with me. It's in the future. I don't really care for Secular apocalyptic literature. It's really depressing, most of it. But I want, I, want, I, want to, I want you to have an apocalyptic vision, if you will. 
And go forward 132 years. So all of us are dead. And you're in heaven. And you're wandering the streets. And you're introducing yourselves to people. And you come across someone who on this earth lived in Cambodia or Papua New Guinea or Siberia or Chile or Germany or Hungary. Places where we have all sent missionaries. And he says to you, because you sent someone to my country to declare the gospel, I'm in heaven. I promise, I think, as much as I can as a human, that's going to happen. People will be there because there was a vision to say, let's take it to the nations. Let's see others redeemed in other places where it seems desperate. Who goes to Dubai? Who goes to Lebanon with the gospel? The heart of Muslim countries. Are you kidding me? We go. Because we want to see people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation come to know Christ. That was Paul's yearning. And that's our yearning as well. Oh, be thankful for this letter because Romans is missions driven. Be thankful as well, fourthly, because it is church building. Paul is not just a theologian. He is a theologian with the heart of an evangelist and a missionary. And he is a theologian with the heart of a pastor. He loves the church. And he wants nothing more than to see not only, not only missions influenced, but churches planted in missions contexts. He wants to grow and protect the church. He loves theology, but he wants that theology to change the lives of people who are in the church. And so much of this book, the heart of this book, is about the sanctification of the church of Christ so that people understand you can be changed. You don't have to be stuck. I've I've come back, I don't know how many times, to chapter 8, verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We cannot keep the law. But because of Christ, the law is fulfilled through us. We now, being in Christ, can do things that satisfy the law, that, that fulfill the law. We can, we can do things that are pleasing to the Lord. We who do not walk according to the flesh, 8-4, but according to the Spirit. That's sanctification, brothers. We can be changed. You're not stuck. That's why he says what he does in chapter 12. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. You can be changed. And so he yearns for people to use their spiritual gifts to help one another to fulfill their calling of God, to serve the church and equip the church. It takes every church member to use his or her spiritual gifts to build the church. There are no sideline Christians. Every Christian is active in the process of using the gifts that have been received to serve and build the church. It's all about the building, the going out of the gospel and the sanctifying power of the gospel. He is, he is persistent about building, preserving, keeping this church. So he is persistent in his pursuit of people loving one another within the church. Chapter 12, let love be without hypocrisy. We noted that verses 9 to 13 in that chapter are just really oriented. Every verse is oriented around this theme of loving one another. 13.8, he says something else similar. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Because he who loves his neighbors fulfilled the law. You couldn't fulfill the law of loving your neighbor apart from Christ, but now in Christ you can fulfill that part of the law. That's your requirement. That's your duty. 14.10 Why do you judge your brother? You again who regard your brother with contempt, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. 
It's all about love. It's all about preserving, protecting, keeping the fellowship of the body. It's all about making sure that the church isn't splintered, that the church isn't torn apart, but that the church is unified around the love of Christ. Sometimes loving others is pleasant and easy, isn't it? Sure. Some of you are really easy to love. And some of us, like me, are hard to love. It's hard to love us sometimes because we're against each other. Verse 14 of chapter 12. We persecute. We're malicious. We don't weep with those who weep. We're haughty. We're wise in our own estimation. We're evil to others. Mean-hearted, mean-spirited, we would say. How do you love that person? Sometimes it's hard to love people because they make different choices than us. They refuse to listen to biblical reason. They have the audacity to make different personal choices than me. How dare they? They drive different kinds of cars and they do different things with their free time. They own, they own off-brand computers and not Macs. Seriously, can you consider that? How dare they? And for the sake of a liberty, a freedom, a preference, we divide the body. And Paul is all about preserving, keeping the unity of the flock. Remember what he said in 15, 1 and 2? We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. And each of us is to please his own neighbor for his good to his edification. That's our priority. And I've said numerous times as we've made our way through this book, particularly the last five chapters, I I think in general we do that well. I think our reputation in Granbury is... Grace Bible Church is a unique church where everything they do is around the Word of God and everything is in support of the people. That that church loves each other. And that's great. But brothers, let us not slacken off in loving. What preserves the body, what preserves the unity is our love for one another. Let us be as persistent in building the church and preserving the church as Paul. We give thanks for this letter. Because Romans is a church-building letter. We give thanks for this letter. Because Romans is God-glorifying. Romans is about God. It might be the most God-centered book in the Bible. The name God appears 153 times in this book. It it appears once every 46 words. In other words, every 2.8 verses, you will see God's name. Says one commentator, Paul writes on a number of topics, but everything is related to God. Romans may truly be described in a way that no other book can be as a book about God. In this book, we find the wrath of God, the judgment of God. That's, that's chapter 1. That's chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. And interestingly there, the judgment of God is given as a comfort to believers. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to be vengeful. We can rest Because God will take care of every act of injustice. Have you suffered? Yes. We have all suffered injustice. We have all endured affliction from from others. And Paul says, we don't have to take revenge, beloved, but we can leave room for the wrath of God because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 12.19 I'll take care of it. I'll repay. Not partially. Not a little bit. 
but fully and for all eternity, vengeance will be poured out. That's our comfort. We find the wrath of God in this book. We find the righteousness of God in this book. Even though God pours out His wrath, He also provides His justice and His righteousness for us who are not righteous. That's 117. That's the bulk of chapter 3. And in the provision of God's righteousness, His justification of sinners, we find the, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the patience of God. I remember someone asking me as I began preaching this book, he said something like, how are you going to keep from killing everybody in the first three chapters? It's so depressing. And we did that by constantly going to the grace of God. And the grace of God is never grace until you see that diamond of grace against the backdrop of the blackness of our sin. And then when you see the fullness of our sin, then you see the exquisite magnificence of God's grace. So chapter 9, it does not depend salvation on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 22, he asks the question, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known? In other words, God could have just said, let me show you the magnificence and the magnitude and the extensiveness of my wrath and my power and pour out my wrath instantly on every sinner. And what if instead of doing that, he endured, 922, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. We see His amazing grace poured out on those of us who deserved only the fullness of His wrath. Instead of the fullness of His wrath, we get the fullness of His grace. We have seen the sovereignty of God in choosing us for salvation. We have seen the magnificence of God, the glory of God, the worthiness of God. We saw it even three weeks ago, 1627, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory forever. That's, that's Paul's conclusion to the preeminence of God. Because God is glorious, because God is preeminent, only God gets glory. So when Paul says, to him be the glory, it's a way of affirming that Paul finds eternal satisfaction in God's character and work. He is consumed with the worship of God. Chapter 1, we saw that that unregenerate people will worship anything instead of God. And Paul says, I just want to be captivated by God. Brothers and sisters, Paul's praise should stimulate us to praise. Our study of theology and scripture and this book is not just to increase our knowledge. It is to lead us to worship. All theology should terminate in worship in delight of the one who is behind the theology. So our meditation on salvation should lead us to humble gratitude. We aren't aren't exalted. He is exalted. And we should worship Him. Having read this great letter, here's the question. Are we more prone to rest in His grace? And delight in Him. That's been the goal. Our Father, we thank You for the revelation of Yourself to us in this great letter. 
What a transforming book this has been. It's been exactly what we have needed these years. It's guided us as a church body as we've thought about ministry. It's guided us personally as it has sanctified us. It has led some of us to salvation, bringing us to an end of ourselves and learning to come to Christ. So as we come to the end of this letter, we thank you. We thank you for the revelation of the gospel that has saved us in justification and is saving us in sanctification. We thank you that there is consistency in this letter with your nature and that there is consistency between this letter and every book of Scripture. This letter and this book are constant and reliable so that this book has become wisdom for us and all your word is to us wisdom, hope, and joy for us. We thank you for the power of this book to save the nations. And thank you for the privilege of taking the message of this book to the nations and seeing them saved. And we thank you for the privilege of taking the message to gospel to Gentile nations. And would you continue saving us Gentiles and along with us Gentiles who have received unworthily this gospel message, would you also be pleased to save your covenant people, Israel? Thank you, our Father, that you are building your church by this book. Jesus promised to build it, and he is building it. And might we be faithful to use the gifts that he has given us as his construction tools And might we be faithful to be all that he has called us and equipped us to be in the church. And then, our Father, we thank you supremely for the revelation of your glory. If you had not declared your greatness in creation, our consciences and your word, we would not understand you. And having revealed yourself, would you also now give us hearts to rightly delight in you, and to rightly declare your magnificence in our daily worship. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.